0: so a cbdc is uh money is software um software directly controlled by the government um meaning that uh the government can program uh each individual unit of the currency to only be spendable under the conditions that it decides um and so at that point you have money transforming from a neutral arbiter of value into something like a, you know, company store token that can mm-hmm. only be spent, um, you know, under the conditions that the company decides. Well, it's it's not really money at that point anymore, and so that's what's so interesting is that um, it's actually Bitcoin that is preserving money um as as a thing as an object as a tool that is available to humanity while these cbdc's are becoming um fully politicized tokens that are used to exchange under politically favorable conditions
1: Hello guys, welcome once again to Bitcoiner, the podcast for Bitcoin News from El Salvadorian to the world. Today we have the great pleasure to have Natalie Smolensky here. So thank you for being here. Thank you for your time and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. So, Natalie, I'm a really big fan of you. I love all your work. And uh uh so it's a big pleasure for me and of course all our audience that you're here. And um well, to start the episode, maybe for those people that don't know you, uh, maybe could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background? I know that your family from Poland and your yes. from the states and your from states, or do you? Yes. Want... How was it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> so my uh, my parents immigrated to the United States from Poland in the early nineteen eighties. Um, and I'm the first person in my family born in the United States. I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas, um, and I'm still here today. Um, I, I came to Bitcoin um, through a software startup that I was working at um, that partnered with MIT to make uh, a digital identity wallet that used Bitcoin as a secure anchor of trust for uh, digital identity claims. Um, so, you know, about 2015-ish was, you know, when I first really heard of Bitcoin and and started to dig into it and understand it. Um, my company ended up um, producing both uh, an open source technology implementation and a commercial SaaS product. And so when um when we spun out uh, a startup to commercialize this this product, I went with that company as the founding business development executive. Um, and I was basically making a market for digital self-sovereignty based in Bitcoin uh, ever since.
1: Wow, that's awesome. Did you mention uh, digital IDs on with the MIT? How, how does it work with, with Bitcoin?
0: Yeah, so, you know, anyone who uses the internet today uses some forms of digital ID. Um, so if you have a username and password, that's a form of digital ID. If you have, mm-hmm. um, a public key, even, um, transacting on the Bitcoin network, that's, that's a kind of digital ID. Um, and so we recognized early on that there was a lot of potential to abuse digital identity technologies for mm-hmm. things like surveillance, um, and monetization of personal data without consent. Um, you know That's basically the business model of many of the consumer SaaS platform companies today. Um, and we we realized that in the same way that people need um, to be able to self-custody their digital money, um, they also need to be able to self-custody their digital identity. Um, and because Bitcoin was already um, the most know widely implemented secure self-sovereign uh financial network mm-hmm. um we basically piggybacked on that to to use it also for verification of digital claims
1: wow wow that's amazing <laughs> i didn't yeah. hear that, about that and uh so i know you just studied very anthrop- an anthropologist right yeah so, yeah so how and why and why did you choose that specific career what what is your passion well about
0: it? yeah it you know, I, I was interested in anthropology because I was interested in people. Um, I, I grew up between cultures in, in Dallas, you know, being raised in a Polish family in the United States. Um, and so I, I felt like I was kind of between worlds. Um, I didn't fully fit into the Polish community. I didn't fully fit into the American community always. Um, but it made me very interested in culture. Um, and cultural anthropology is the science of culture, mm-hmm. um, and so I kind of naturally gravitated to that to that field. I was particularly interested in uh, how value circulates in human societies. So um, you know, notions of the sacred and the profane, um, the you know, good and evil, um, and how that actually has economic inflections, and in, in how people negotiate um, the, the value of things and, um, borders, you know, between, uh, different social groups and social hierarchies, you know, who's important and who gets listened to and why. Um, and, you know, so I didn't, I didn't ever intend to get into software, uh, but my, my dissertation in anthropology was, um, was not legible, to my uh committee at the time they did they didn't understand really what i was trying to do and so um basically they told me that either i had to choose a completely different project um or leave (laughs) and i always i always prefer to um you know uh, privilege my own project you know that's why i'm there um so i chose to leave, you know, I made my way through initially uh, got a job as a as a brand planner at an advertising agency um, and then moved into software. And mm-hmm. this company that I, I was working at, you know, happened to partner with MIT to build this uh, Bitcoin based digital identity mm-hmm. wallet. Mm-hmm. So I became very interested in Bitcoin as a social phenomenon and started writing about it from kind of a, a more historical anthropological perspective, um, and continue to do that to this day.
1: And when was the the year that you first heard about, about Bitcoin?
0: I think it was around 2015, um, when I first heard of it. And then the company, um, built and released the, uh, the BlockSert's um, digital identity standard in 2016, and we officially launched the company in 2017.
1: And the Texas uh, Blockchain Council, are, are you the founder or the co-founder? Or?
0: Yeah, so I sold the startup, um, the the digital identity startup to a company uh-huh. called Highland Software in 2020 um, uh-huh. just before the pandemic shut everything down. Um, so it cool. was really one of those like, wow, uh, ki- kind of moments. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that, I had been doing to make a market for Bitcoin-based digital identity over the past few years um, was I. I had actually done a considerable amount of policy work um, both in the United States and in the European Union to mm-hmm. further the exception uh, the acceptance of Bitcoin um, as as an identity technology. And so, you know, when I when I heard that Lee Bratcher you know, was founding a, an organization to advocate for the Bitcoin industry in Texas, um, this was early 2020, mm-hmm. I immediately uh, joined up with him um, and we basically, uh, you know, co-founded and, and built the Texas Blockchain Council, which is a, a trade association representing the Bitcoin industry in Texas. Um, mm-hmm. So I was the first, you know, chairman of the board of that organization. I helped set it up. Um you know, get get uh, legislation passed. Uh, helped author legislation. Um, then last year, beginning of twenty two, um, my focus shifted. So um, I I stepped back a little bit from policy work um, because I felt that the Bitcoin community actually needed um, some rigorous social scientific engagement with how bitcoin is transforming human societies so i was seeing a lot of work being done on the policy front Mm -hmm. um and a lot of work being done on the technology front but um not a lot of work being done to ask you know the bigger questions of why bitcoin matters why this policy work matters um Mm -hmm. why the united states should get behind Bitcoin adoption? Like what what value does it have for for the United States in particular, for the state of Texas in particular? Um, And so I saw the need for uh, an organization that would focus more on the research and education behind Bitcoin um, that could then become policy advocacy downstream. And so that's why I founded the Texas um, Bitcoin Foundation which is a, a charity organization. So we, we don't lobby for industry. We don't um, you know, directly op- like engage in policy work. Um, and that organization um, is our sole mission is to basically increase the understanding of Bitcoin and education of Bitcoin for ordinary people, for um, politicians, for industry leaders, Um, For anyone who wants to learn, um, we do have uh, both, you know, uh, an academic and a vocational focus. So um, we helped launch the first uh, professional certification mining program in uh, at any university anywhere in the world, uh, right here at Texas State Technical College. Um, so, if you want to go into Bitcoin mining as a career, there's now a career path for you in uh, in a Texas university system. Um, we're also more on the on the scholarly side, publishing the first academic journal dedicated to Bitcoin and political economy, um, and so that journal called the Satoshi Papers will be coming out, um, you know, relatively soon, and it, it contains articles from economists, uh, social scientists, um, and others who, who are asking the question of, you know, what a non-sovereign digital currency means for the nation-state, particularly in this era of geopolitical realignments, when, you know, United States world supremacy can no longer be taken for granted.
1: And the... I wanted to ask you about your rabbit hole journey and uh, basically what made you study Bitcoin? And uh, do you remember the time that you just say, okay, this is legit and maybe when do you know that this, this thing, Bitcoin, is totally different from other blockchains, other cryptocurrencies? Uh, it has no basically point of comparison.
0: Yeah, um, certainly. So. Um, when I was at uh, the software company I was at, and they began building the the Blockcerts identity standard with MIT, um, the people leading that project were, you know, fully convinced of Bitcoin's value proposition. Um, first of all, as a form of verifiably scarce um, digital sound money, um, and as a censorship resistant. A protocol for the transfer of value. Um, and so, you know, I had the great fortune of being part of a world-class team um, that understood why Bitcoin was different. Um, and then as I began to do my own research and dig into it, um, sort of solidified that value proposition. Um, so I, w- I would say you know initially it was a credit to my team um absolutely for introducing me to bitcoin and and to to its uniqueness in the quote unquote crypto space um and then over time you know i was able to put out the uh, my own research you know showing why this matters particularly in an era of accelerated state surveillance um and a progressive closure of sort of the the aperture of liberty um, that we are we are witnessing worldwide.
1: Yeah, and actually I was watching one, I was watching, one, I, don't, I don't remember if it was on Twitter or so, a, a couple weeks ago that you were making a speech, I think, uh, or you were invited for a meeting with maybe IMF, I don't remember. You were talking about mm-hmm. CBDCs, right? And, yeah. Uh, so... Normally on this podcast I usually ask for my guest to kindly explain to kind of, to explain that the difference between cryptos and and Bitcoin, but I think you have a a better approach and understanding not about cryptos but uh about C B D C. So maybe for the person that they don't they don't have so much understanding that there are beginners in this space. Can can you explain then what are CBDCs and maybe what are your concerns about it?
0: Yeah, so uh, uh, absolutely. So CBDCs are government's answer to cryptocurrency. Um, as governments have watched cryptocurrencies gain in popularity and adoption, they have felt that cryptocurrencies threaten uh, the government monopoly on the issuance of money. Um, now, the government monopolies on money are are actually fairly recent thing historically for, for most of human history. You know, money has been uh, largely a bottom-up phenomenon. So, you know, human societies valued some commodity, um, whether, you know, it was shells or obsidian chips or you know gold or silver um and then that commodity became standardized into more fungible tokens that could then be uh, exchanged um sometime you know uh, several thousand years ago um as the first large uh, states started to form um governments began to realize that um in order to maintain the armies that they would need to consolidate and expand their power, they they were gonna have to pay um, soldiers in a currency that could be easily spent wherever the state decided to wage war. And so the first forms of state-issued coinage began to appear um, sort of in in coincidence with the expansion of, of human empires. Um, but that didn't that didn't get rid of you know other forms of non-state money which sort of coexisted alongside these state issued currencies um the vast majority of people didn't didn't have a- actually access to state issued money um there wasn't there wasn't a lot of liquidity <laughs> in those days and so people had to measure uh transactions in other ways primarily using ledgers um rather than even Uh, commodity exchanges. Um, And so, you know, the question of what is money is one that uh, Bitcoin has raised. Um, And in the 20th century, you know, that we can sort of consider that century the peak of uh, state monopoly on money issuance and, and also on planning of the monetary economy. So, the, the central banking system really, um, I mean, it, it emerged in isolated examples in previous centuries, but it really became a global phenomenon in the 20th century. And, you know, the United States Federal Reserve was founded in, in 1913, and that, you know, has become sort of the central bank of not the whole world, but for, for many countries around the world, the central bank mm-hmm. of central banks um and so you know when bitcoin was introduced it was introduced as a direct challenge to the central bank monopoly uh over money um and central banks unsurprisingly didn't like that um and so it's taken them a few years but they've now produced their answer to bitcoin um in central bank digital currencies and they're their pitch to the people is that you know Bitcoin is too volatile to serve as a store value or medium of exchange, in in other words, to be an effective money. Um, but hey, you trust, you trust your dollars. Um, so this is just a, a digital version of the dollars that you already use every day. Um, uh, so much better than Bitcoin, right? Well, I mean, the the problem with it is that. Um, it partakes of all of the weaknesses of a central bank issued digital currency or a central bank issued currency. So, um, you know, anyone who's been following the history of the U.S. dollar um, is aware that it has uh, been progressively devalued since its introduction. Um, Today, I think it's it's lost, you know, 97-98% of the value that it originally had in 1913. Um this devaluation, though, has happened slowly enough that um a lot of people don't notice it. Um and so they consider it to be a stable store of value. Um it's it's not. not. Um, and so you know that's one weakness of CBDCs is that it simply replicates the inflationary uh, central bank currencies that are already problematic for that reason. But then it also adds on to that weakness the full programmability uh, of the currency itself. So a CBDC is uh, money as software. Um, Software directly controlled by the government, Um, meaning that uh, the government can program uh, each individual unit of the currency to only be spendable under the conditions that it decides. Um, And so at that point, you have money transforming from a neutral arbiter of value. Into something like a, you know, company store token that can mm-hmm. only be spent, um, you know, under the conditions that the company decides. Well, it's it's not really money at that point anymore. And so that's what's so interesting is that um, it's actually Bitcoin that is preserving money, um, as as a thing, as an object. As a tool that is available to humanity while these cbdc's are becoming um fully politicized tokens that Mm -hmm. are used to exchange under politically favorable conditions
1: yeah that's true actually while you were explaining this um i was i was thinking that at the beginning of the podcast you mentioned uh the word value so do you think um well, I was thinking two things. One, that everything that you saying it was uh, basically the story of the Bretton the Woods Agreement. and uh, But I also heard, and I think it, it was in, I, I don't remember if it was in on the Natalie podcast, that you mentioned the Bretton Woods Tree Agreement. Mm. Yeah. So first of all, what is that? And then I have another question. But first of all, what is that? The Bretton Woods 3. Yeah. Like- so
0: Bretton Woods 3 is a term that some have used to describe the the changing the, or the new global financial system that we're in today. So Bretton Woods 1 um was, you know, th- actually Bretton Woods was the location of a meeting that happened in 1944. Um, by the Allied powers um, during the Second World War to kind of hash out how how the countries of Europe, which were completely devastated um, after the war, would create a financial basis for rebuilding their economies, because they, they were all broke. Um, the United mm-hmm. States had three-fourths of the world's gold at that point, because European countries had paid the United States for arms in gold. Um, And so but the United States also realized that, you know, if we have all the collateral, then nobody can trade with us. And so we don't have any trade partners. And we need trade partners to grow our own economy. And so we needed to actually come to an agreement about what the global economic system would look like so that we could we could all rebuild. and at that time, um, the uh, the gold standard was adopted. The U.S. dollar was pegged to a certain amount of gold, and and many European currencies were in turn pegged to the U.S. dollar. Um, that gold peg was um, became a problem for the United States because we very quickly started outspending our ability to exchange dollars for gold. Um, Mostly by continuing to to wage war. So, you know, after the Second World War, um, we fought the Korean War, which put our country into into debt for the first time since since the World War. Um, Then we fought in Vietnam. um, We fought in other conflicts um, and that progressively, you know, (laughs) indebted the U.S. Treasury. And so in 1971, President Nixon announced the closure of the gold window. We would no longer convert U.S. dollars for gold. Um, That was a big shock to the world. Um, And, you know, that was what created the regime of fiat currency, currency that is not backed by anything other than sovereign fiat or will. Um, So there's no commodity backing the the value of the u.s dollar and in turn any currency that's pegged to the u.s dollar um that was Bretton woods too so sort of starting in 1971 um that world order could only last as long as um american military strength um was powerful enough to ensure a fully American-led world order. Um, and as long as we could kind of shadow back the dollar with oil, um, that was an agreement shortly after the clo- closure of the gold window, we we struck an agreement with Saudi Arabia to exclusively price oil in US dollars. Um, and so these petrodollars became, in effect, oil came to kind of substitute for gold as um as a as a commodity backing for for the dollar but not in any direct way in more of a symbolic way Mm -hmm. Um, that order has been fraying you know the united states like many military empires vastly overextended itself um overspent um on conflicts that it couldn't win didn't win. Most recently, Iraq and Afghanistan, I mean, trillions of dollars were spent on those conflicts that ended in uh, in U.S. withdrawal. Um, in the meantime, uh, other countries have begun to push back against uh, U.S. control of the oil, uh, in effect, trade, uh, global oil trade by trading in in other currencies other than US dollars. Um, And so that's undermined then the petrodollar um, basis for trusting the US dollar as a kind of stable store of value. Um, And so now what we're seeing is a collapse in the confidence um, that people have in the the american sovereign fiat that -hmm. backs the dollar so we're seeing a crisis of confidence in the state in the american state um and an active push by america's rivals to remove themselves from dependence on the u.s controlled global financial system so that they can transact freely without having to go through the U.S. banking system, which they have to do if they're transacting in dollars. Um, and so all of that has led to Bretton Woods III, which is the era that we're in today. Um, meaning that the the collapse of the petrodollar as a global reserve system is well underway. Um, with that, a, a collapse of U.S. military hegemony Um, The rise of um, BRICS countries in political power, uh, economic power, military power, um, and in an alternative currency. So the the BRICS countries are developing their own um, SDR, special drawing rights um, currency that's um, backed by a basket of different national currencies and commodities. So it's a return to commodity money um, and the rise of Bitcoin which is a non-state, non-aligned, global, neutral digital currency. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what's interesting about Bretton Woods 3 is that, um, you know, it it reflects the extent to which any currency issued by a government is a political tool. It is controlled and instrumentalized by the government issuing that currency, and, um, and a multipolar world in which people now have a choice. Do they want to transact in the dollar, which is the political tool of the U.S. government, or the, the yuan or the ruble or the, the new BRICS currency, which is a political tool of those governments? Well, is there a possibility that we could have money that's not the political tool of some government? Well, that is Bitcoin. Um, and this is why Bitcoin is so important for human Liberty.
1: It's really interesting because, uh, you know, when back in the, in the eighties and for example, in El Salvador, we have our civil war. That's when it started and, um, many Salvadorians, and of course, many people from Central America run away, but especially in El Salvador, because we have our, our civil war and, um, I, I have an uncle that, went to to America, to the United States, basically to chase the American dream, right? And now that you're explaining, you're explaining to me all of this, I always think how things have changed because by that time, people were, they wanted to go to United States, basically to chase the American dream, right? To have a, a stable life, financial security, maybe to have a, a home and uh and now apparently it's really difficult to chase uh, to chase that. Right. So I was thinking that maybe th- by that time that was uh maybe that was the value of the American society, maybe that all people in Latin America and maybe around the world wanted to. That's why they wanted to go there. So uh, but I was thinking and that is connected for for the thing that I was going to ask you before that you mentioned the word value. Uh, so what is exactly a value system in, in in a society?
0: Right. So um human beings are meaning-making machines. You know, we're we're always making meanings from the world around us. It's how we navigate the world. Some of those meanings we translate into language. Um, other of those meanings, we translate into um, economic valuations. So, you know, things like price, um, mechanisms of exchange, barter. Um, We, uh, we also, you know, have a primal experience of value through human relationships themselves. So every, every human child grows up um in relationship with other human beings who serve caretaking functions you know for that child poorly or well um, The child develops attachments um, prioritizes relationships of intimacy and so um, these are basically value is just one index of meaning or one way that human beings index what something means um, so, you know, you you can you can talk about different modalities of value, um, exchange value versus use value. Um, you know, and and what's very interesting to me are those things in human societies that um, we would say don't have an exchange value that are priceless, you know, things that you couldn't pay me enough money. Uh, For, Um, And that's where we start to get into the realm of the sacred. Um, And so that was my interest as an anthropologist of religion is um, how do the things that are priceless um, or that have infinite value from the point of view of human beings, um, how do they inflect the economies of exchange for everything else? that that does in fact have a price
1: <laughs> yeah um a couple of days ago i was i was reading an article that changing a little bit the subject um uh, an article that you wrote for forbes i think it's your first mm-hmm. article your first article right the, it oh was, yeah yeah congratulations by the way. <laughs> oh, thanks what's <laughs> <It was> amazing <laughs> guys if you haven't read it you should read it <laughs> It's called a regulator shutdown of signature of SBB and silver rate silver banks and raised question about neutrality. And uh, in, in your article, you, you mentioned that the recent regulatory actions against banks serving the crypto industry have uh, highlighted the value of a political politically neutral currency like Bitcoin. Right. So, can you explain why Bitcoin is a political neutral and how it's compared to fiat and cryptocurrencies in, in this regard.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um Bitcoin is politically neutral in several ways. Um one is from a mo- monetary policy standpoint. So the the monetary policy of Bitcoin is fixed by the protocol. Um and you know, virtually impossible to to change. Um so we we know that only 21 million bitcoin will ever be issued um you know the the mining rewards reliably are cut in half every 4 years mm-hmm. um once all of the bitcoin have been issued that's all that there will be um each bitcoin is subdivisible into uh, 100 million satoshi um and then those all exist you know in exchange pairs or trade pairs with with other forms of currency um so so that's a form of neutrality, you know. If you contrast that with central banks, I mean, central banks can choose to print money or destroy money at will, um, and that's what the Federal Reserve is now doing. Um, they, you know, in effect, backstopped initially all of SVPs, SVBs uh, deposits, insured or uninsured, um, old or new. Um, which is a significant action i mean it's a it's a central bank committing to uh printing however much money is required for this particular institution to remain solvent um so that's already a political decision you know choos- choosing to favoritize this this institution but um you know now we're hearing from the fed that the the central bank may backstop all US banks, (laughs) Um, which is, you know, extraordinary um, and relies on the Federal Reserve's ability to print unlimited amounts of money at any time. Um, So again, that's full, fully political decision. Um, Another way that Bitcoin is neutral is that um, there's no way to effectively censor transactions. So um, if I want to transact with you in Bitcoin, um you know or anyone else at any time if i'm if i'm running my own node of the bitcoin software there is no third party intermediary um who can decide that my transaction is invalid or violates some political or social norms and therefore cannot be uh anchored to the chain it will be it will go through um and so it's um so there's you know monetary policy. There's um, censorship-resistant transacting. There's also censorship-resistant uh, storage of Bitcoin. So I can I can hold my own Bitcoin on uh, a wallet that I fully control. That you know I can choose to even keep permanently offline, never connect to a network device. Um, but it is it is fully within my control as long as I have my seed phrase memorized, um, I can access and spend that money anywhere I choose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really these these three elements of Bitcoin that render it uh, politically neutral.
1: Mm. And uh, you also mentioned in your article that um, the regulatory response to the crypto industry has been inconsistent and arbitrary. So uh, do you think this lack of currency coherency in the regulatory approach to to well cryptos because basically all all of there were related to to cryptos will eventually be be resolved or this is systematic systemic sorry
0: yeah I I think that there I think the incoherence of the regulatory response to crypto is actually a symptom of the incoherence of the American project today I, I think that the United States is in a political crisis, that people in the United States have vastly differing ideas about who we are as a country and who we should be as a country. Um, there are very strong factions on both the right and the left um, in the United States that that um, see their vision of America as only possible with a strong and ever stronger state. So they're they're statist. Um, they believe that you know the the solutions to problems come top down through direct government intervention. Um, and, and then you know there there are other factions who would suggest that in fact many of these problems are self-inflicted. By a state that has gotten too big and too too interventionist, um, that is, you know, trying to make decisions way beyond its capacity to know, uh, even even how to assess the problem. Um, and so, you know, the reason the regulatory response to crypto has been incoherent is because all these factions have been battling it out, <laughs> um, both in in mm-hmm. Washington and in state governments. And there's no consensus, no agreement on what the path forward should be. Um, and this is one of the reasons that in, in my work for the Texas Bitcoin Foundation and the Bitcoin Policy Institute, where I'm a fellow, I try to really emphasize the importance of the uh, American history of liberty, particularly individual liberty, um, as the defining characteristic of the American project. Um, because otherwise, it's just going to be a battle between, you know, this statist faction and that statist faction.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, do you think that we are at the beginning of, of another real financial crisis or this is just political or it's a mix of... Okay, yeah, I'm...
0: every financial crisis is always a political crisis because um, the financial system is has been fully politicized for quite some time. Um, and so what we saw in 2008 was um, that was a crisis where uh, private lending by, by banks was um, basically way too risky. They took way too many risks. Um, in, in fact, in some cases engaged in outright fraud um, or malpractice and went down. And the response of the government was, to, to basically um, step in and put uh, put the resources of the state, both through money printing and taxpayer resources, um, to work, to rescue these private institutions that had mismanaged uh, customer funds. Um, but what we're seeing today is um, a, a, a crisis of confidence in the sovereign itself. So, um, it, you know, COVID sort of accelerated this, you know, we were just before COVID, the US Central Bank was starting to tighten, you know, the the money supply a little bit, uh, like starting to pull back from its, its response to 2008. But then as soon as COVID happened, it started printing again. Um, uh-huh. And then COVID kind of taped it off and like so we thought okay it's time to tighten again the problem is when you have multi decades of just injecting free liquidity into the system um you've created such vulnerability that the moment you start raising rates again you crash the entire global economy and so i I think we're just at the beginning of that i think it's going to get much worse
1: well yeah definitely i I believe so too (laughs) and uh one thing that i want to ask you is well related to the texas texas bitcoin foundation uh recently i think in a couple of weeks ago um, you were visited by maxine stacy and also milena mayorga and you yeah. were working with uh with this for the second bitcoin embassy right this is yes. going to be the second one so can explain to all learned what? basically two questions one what is the a bitcoin embassy and what are you working on with el salvador yeah
0: absolutely so um, the bitcoin embassy is the name that um, the government of el salvador has given to um salvadoran chambers of commerce uh in other countries so that's the legal structure of the entity it's it's a chamber of commerce it's designed to facilitate trade between El Salvador and, um, and the country that it's in. So the first Bitcoin embassy was opened in Lugano in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that that project is underway. Um, the second one is currently planned for Austin, Texas. And so my role in that was basically just to facilitate the, the meetings, uh, the conversations between the government's of El Salvador and the state of Texas. Ultimately, you know, as a as a five hundred one c three organization, we don't we're not a representative of any government. We don't um, pass laws. We don't do that kind of direct policy work. So, you know, now that we've helped bring these governments together, um, it's really going to be up to them to uh, come to the agreements necessary to get the embassy opened. Um, So that's kind of where it stands today.
1: Now that you're mentioning Texas, I know that Texas, is I think it's one of the states, maybe the top states that is working hardly on Bitcoin, especially on mining. So how is currently the situation over there in terms of maybe policies, legal terms, or or how is the evolve of the Bitcoin mining in Texas?
0: Yeah, so... Um, Texas is still a global hub of Bitcoin mining. Um, We saw a lot of mining activity relocate to Texas um, after China banned mining in 2021. Um, We had a number of Chinese miners move into the state, but also uh, miners from other parts of the country uh, and the world who were having their mining operations shut down or were, were seeing political activity move against uh, mining in their jurisdiction. And so Texas has benefited from being a uh, very friendly state to Bitcoin miners from a regulatory standpoint and also from a culture standpoint. There's a lot of openness to Bitcoin here. The governor has openly expressed support. Um, There are many champions of Bitcoin mining in the Texas state legislature. Um, But there also is blowback. Um, there's blowback uh, first at the federal level so um last year senator elizabeth warren called for an investigation into the environmental impacts um of bitcoin miners in texas and and you know to their impacts on the energy grid um there there are some uh legislators in texas who oppose bitcoin mining um, and want to see it curtailed so um You know, it's a constant we have to constantly be vigilant um, and we can never get to the place where we just trust that the government's going to do the right thing. Um, This is part of what what democracy means and part of what freedom means is that the citizens have to be constantly engaged and pushing back because the moment we step back, you know, that's the moment that our liberties get taken from us and then it's a lot more work to get get back liberties than it is to preserve the ones you already have
1: (laughs) that's true that's true and uh natalie we have around uh, seven minutes wow yeah (laughs) super super quick so um just to start and wrap it up i think i have maybe two or three more questions for you and uh One is how do you think that Bitcoin is changing the way people uh, think about trust and and transparency? Also, now that yeah people are starting to be aware or waking up about basically the meaning of money, right? The real meaning of money.
0: No, absolutely. I think I think the main objection to Bitcoin adoption to date has been, at least in the United States, that people have trusted the U.S. dollar. Um, they've fundamentally trusted. Um, that the U.S. dollar will continue to keep its value and that the U.S. government will conduct policy in a way that preserves the value of that dollar. I think over the past just few months, but um, certainly over the past few years, that trust has dramatically dropped. I think a lot of people in the United States are beginning to say for the first time, I'm concerned that my money isn't going to be worth as much in you know a few years than it is today, Um, and that's not a problem that Americans have have had. You know, like I said, inflation in the United States has generally happened slowly enough that people have have generally felt secure. But do Um, you think
1: sorry, interrupt? Do you think it's way worse than 2008? The
0: situation. Uh, Oh yeah, yeah. This is. In two thousand and eight, people people turned their anger against the banks. Uh-huh. Um, oh, and, okay, and there, I see the difference. Yeah, and there there was definitely a, a drop in trust in government because the government was seen as just giving the banks a blank check to um, to fool around. Um, but this time, it's it's a lot worse. It's that you know the government itself has created this problem that. The banks are actually trying their best to respond to, but they can't because the system has been set up. The system of fractional reserve lending that is the government endorsed business model for banks is the very problem. Um, Mm. And so I I think that we're going to see a major uptick in Bitcoin adoption in the United States in the coming years.
1: Well, and. going back to the texas Becoming foundation what are you mainly working on right now there this year under foundation
0: yeah so so this year our our main project well we we facilitated that um connection between the salvadoran government and the government of texas so um it's a great achievement (laughs) yeah we're very proud of that um we all also uh, have have launched the Satoshi Papers, which is that uh, academic journal I was telling you about. Mm -hmm. Um, So my main goal uh, as editor-in-chief of that journal is to get um, all of the pieces ready for publication. Um, I also have to write my own contribution to it. Um, So that's going to be a big focus. Um, But I think it's going to be really, really good. Um, And it's the kind of thing that Um, not everyone will read because it, you know, it's, it, it can be difficult to read academic articles, but having them is very important because Mm. policymakers, scientists, um, industry leaders, they need to have that kind of research to cite so that they can continue to do the more publicly accessible work that they do.
1: Okay. Okay. Wow. That's perfect. And uh I think the the last question will be if have you orange peeled your family yet?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, um I think I was telling Natalie Brunel this. Um my parents were very skeptical of Bitcoin at first, um, in large part because they had so much faith in in the US dollar and, and okay. the US financial system. But you know, I think I think they're beginning to see the ways in which that system at the very least isn't perfect and and probably doesn't hurt to have a backup plan you know um and and i think that's how a lot of people you know it's not that they're fully orange-pilled or maximalists but they're saying to themselves you know just in case maybe i should get some
1: (laughs) yeah that's actually that's what happened to my my parents i mean my dad is way i think he's orange pilled at what 100 percent no maximalist but yeah but but my mom, I think it's currently and now she's beginning to to see that, especially in the changes that already saw with Bitcoin and the governmental software that the, change are, the things are changing. So, I think yeah. So, OK, Natalie Smolensky, thank you for being here again. Thank you for your time. And it was a really pleasure to have you here on Bitcoin. Yeah,
0: wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
1: OK, guys, see you next week.